You're listening to audio from Embassy Church. We exist to advance the message and ministry of Jesus in the city of Bloomington, on the campus of IU, and to the ends of the earth. understand a little bit of background Um, and it's anything but good the apostle is imprisoned in Rome he is chained uh, to elite guards of Caesar's household he's awaiting trial uh, before Caesar with his own life at stake and he is under house arrest unable to move about he has no freedom to make matters worse local pastors have grown jealous and irritated at Paul's giftedness and they engage in a smear campaign against him his reputation has come under attack he's held captive and to add insult to injury he actually has to pay for his own rent in his house arrest we read that in Acts chapter 28 and when the church at Philippi received word of his desperate situation they took up a gift to pay for Paul's imprisonment and gave it to a guy named Epaphroditus. So Epaphroditus was going to bring it to him in Rome. Epaphroditus gets really sick. He almost dies. Things aren't going well for Paul. But Paul spends these verses praising and declaring his thankfulness, his humility, his gratitude for the person and the work of Jesus. Why? Because Jesus does something for you and for me that we can never do for ourselves. It's not in the text, but I want to just take a moment, a couple minutes, just to talk to you about just the power and the work of what Jesus has done. If you were to go back to Zechariah chapter 3, maybe you're like, is that even a book of the Bible? It is in the Old Testament, a minor prophet. Zechariah chapter 3, God transports Zechariah into the temple, and he gives him a vision of what is going on. Now, if you know anything about the temple, you had the, the outer court, right? Then you had the, the inner court, and then you had the holy of the Holy of Holies, so the outer court, the inner court, and the Holy of Holies. And a week before uh, the Day of Atonement, which is called Yom Kippur, um, Day of Atonement, atonement means to repair what is wrong, right? So when Christ says he atoned for our sins, he made a wrong relationship that you had with God right through the blood of Jesus, through his sacrifice. So a week before the Day of Atonement, you had a high priest, one time a year, one guy, and he would be secluded from everybody, so he wouldn't touch anything unclean, he wouldn't eat anything unclean, he wouldn't interact and do anything unclean, he was, he was secluded, and they would actually deliver his food to him, just so he would be secluded from everybody. And he would bathe from head to toe, and he'd put on white, pure linens, and then he would go uh, the night before, the night before he would go into the Holy of Holies, where he would make a sacrifice, a life was taken so that another person's or people's life could be spared. The night before, he would stay up all night, praying, confessing confessing, repenting. Um, He wouldn't eat and he would take another bath from head to toe and put on new white linen and then he would go into the Holy of Holies and he would make a sacrifice for who? For himself. And then he'd go back out and he'd take another bath from head to toe and he'd put on new white linen and he'd go back in and he'd make a sacrifice for who? The priest. And then he'd go back out, and you're like, man, that, was, that sounds like a job. I don't want that job. And he would go and take another bath from head to toe and put on new white linen, and then he'd go back in the Holy of Holies, and he'd make a sacrifice for who? For the people. 
And Zechariah has this vision of seeing Joshua, the high priest, one time a year. He's going in to make sacrifice. And he did all of this behind a thinly veiled curtain because he was their representative before God. And they wanted to make sure that Joshua, the high priest, was doing everything right. He's our rep. He's going in. I want my sins forgiven. I want God to look over with the spirit of forbearance. I want him to look over and forgive me my sins. So I want to make sure that Joshua is doing everything right. And Zechariah gets a vision. And when he sees Joshua, who's done all this cleansing and new white linens, he's bathed himself three times, he's confessed, he's repented. Joshua gets a vision, Zechariah gets a vision of Joshua, and you know what he sees in Zechariah chapter 3? He sees Joshua covered in excrement, covered in feces. Why does God give Zechariah a vision of Joshua the high priest who's gone through all of this process. And when he sees Joshua, why does he see Joshua covered in excrement? He wants Zechariah to know, and as he wants us to know through the Spirit of Christ this morning, that anything that we do on our own merit to try to clean ourselves up, to make ourselves pure and acceptable apart from the intervention of the better Joshua, Joshua, Yeshua, Jesus, the same name in Aramaic, Hebrew, and Greek. There was a greater and better Joshua who comes and does what? Does something for us. He takes off our garments of feces, our garments of unrighteousness. He takes away our sin. He takes away all of our filth, and he puts Jesus on us so that when he looks at you, he sees you covered with who? Jesus, and that's what Philippians is all about. It's all about we want to make much of Jesus. That's what embassy is all about. God does something for us in the person and the work of Jesus that you can never do for yourself. You cannot make yourself acceptable and pure and right and clean and forgiven apart from the work and the person of Jesus. That's enough. We should end it there and just sing. But I've got more I want to say, so just sit down and let me share, share with you, all right? So nevertheless, Paul declares... God's provision in Jesus and consequently believers. He delights in God's provision. And right now, through your giving and through people all around the world, there's another church being birthed. God's provision. We want people to understand God's provision. And that's through the person and the work of Christ. What would it look like, just as, as an aside, what would it look like if we as a church here at Embassy and Graceland Church, where I serve as one of the pastors, if we gave and lived sacrificially, like, like legitimately, if we lived sacrificially, generously? I mean, if you just give me five women, five men who really are all in with Jesus and you can change the landscape of a neighborhood change the landscape of a university. People who are all in with Jesus. Verse 15, what did he say? And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. And Paul is declaring and praising God for the provision of Jesus and the provision that God's people, the saints of Philippi, have provided. Paul says in verses 10 through 13 that he learned contentment in a lot and a little. His circumstances did not dictate his contentment. His contentment 
led him to be generous. I have contentment in Christ, and it frees me from having a tight grip on all the stuff of my life, from my talents and my time and my money and my gifting. I want to have an open hand because I'm content. I've had a lot, and I've had a little, and I've learned contentment. And when you have contentment in Christ, you will have a loose grip on the things that God has providentially given to you. If a church has a tight grip on the resource, they don't want to give $90,000. They want to give it away for more kingdom outpost. That word content is used of a country that had everything that it needed and nothing had to be imported. It had all the resources and natural products to be self-sufficient. Nothing else was needed from the outside. Paul is not saying that he's self-sufficient in and of himself, but rather he is abundantly sufficient in the resources of God. Nothing needs to be imported into Paul's life. There's nothing lacking in his life because of God's provision in Jesus and God's people are galvanized to live and give sacrificially and generously. He had both at times. He had a lot and he had a little and he learned contentment. Verse 13, he says, you know, you know this verse, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. There are many, many athletes that would put that on, on their, uh, underneath their eyes and on their shoes. I was in the Philippines with Tim Tebow. I call him Timmy. I was a leader. He was a high school student. He said, hey, uh, would you like to throw pa- catch passes for me? I had no idea he was a top 10 quarterback. I said, sure. I caught two passes. I said, you throw too hard. I don't want to do this anymore. And then he said, hey, well, you just knocked the ball out from my stomach. I said, what does that mean? He's like, just punch me. I was like, okay, I can do that. Then he ran at me, and I said, I'm out. Like, you're big. I'm small. And we played three and three basketball in the Philippines, and I was just lobbing to alley-oops to Tim. And I was like, hey, we're trying to minister to people. Let's not humiliate them anymore. And so uh, Tim does doesn't believe uh, I can do all things through Christ. So if you want to be an NFL player, just quote Philippians 4.13. If you want to be 6.5 in your 5.2, just quote Philippians. That's not what Paul is writing here in Philippians 4.13. He's saying the word strengthen means to, to be empowered, to be enabled, to be made strong, to increase in strength. I can do all things through Jesus who what? Strengthens me. This is as individual and as personal as it can be. No matter what else is going on in your life, in your family, in your work, in your church, this is confidence that you can have in Jesus. I can do all things. All means all. We have uh, a saying in our house that we don't use absolutes. Lauren will say, you never do the dishes. And I'll say, never? Has there ever been a time I've done the dishes? There has. I said, because then that statement is wrong. Uh, I say, you all, my wife leaves the cabinets doors. We don't have a big kitchen, and she leaves the cabinet doors open all the time, and God's sanctifying me, making me more like Jesus, so I can be patient and kind. And we have like a 100-square-foot kitchen, but with all the cabinet doors open, it goes down to like 12 square feet of kitchen. I'm like, you never shut the cabinet doors. And she says, never? Has there ever been a time I've shut the cabinet doors? I said, I, I don't know. She goes, there, there, has, been, there has been. So, I, so we don't use absolutes in terms of when we describe people's behavior, good or bad. Paul says, I can do, let's say it together, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens and empowers me so that we will make much of Jesus. Verse 20, that will glorify God. And glor- glorifying God is really making public who God is. It's one of those Christian words. What does it mean, God's glory, God's renown? God's glory is the going public of who he is. And if God is provided in Jesus, 
He did not even withhold his own son. God was generous and kind, and God is not a miser. God's not stingy. And if you're a believer and follower of Jesus, you're not called to be stingy either with your time and your gifting and your money. Because when you do, you're actually obscuring the character of God. When you're generous and you're kind and you're gracious and you're sacrificial, you're actually declaring and glorifying God. You're making public who he is because God is not a miser. If we will embrace these things at a deep level, it will change our lives. It will change our lives. If you'll look to Jesus, if you'll trust Jesus, if you'll live for Jesus, if you'll worship Jesus, if you'll adore Jesus, if you'll serve Jesus, follow Jesus, obey Jesus, then this joy that is very prominent in the book of Philippians will increase and it will fill and it will flood your soul as you understand God's provision in Jesus. And then you will be part of the story where you're giving and living and sacrificing in a very generous posture. We need to be reminded of this. You need to be reminded of this. I need to be reminded of this. Either you are in a very set, very difficult set of circumstances right now, or you are about to head into a very difficult set of circumstances, or you just stepped out of a very difficult set of circumstances, and you need to understand, as, as Paul is writing his words, he's in jail, y'all. The Christian life is not Pollyanna. I, I, th- I think what we have in the West is actually the exception, not the rule. The way of Christ, understand Jesus, the Son of God, is a road of trials and hardship and suffering. And the person who lives an uneventful, easy life, that's the exception. God had only one son without sin, but he has no sons or daughters without sorrow. And you will know what it is to be hungry. You will know what it is to hurt. You will know what it is to be persecuted and laughed at and mocked. You will know what it is to have a little. But if you understand God's gracious, generous provision in Jesus, you understand, I can do all things through Jesus who strengthens me. You can walk through whatever set of circumstances that God brings providentially in your life. Why is Jesus such a priority in this text in verses 10 through 20? Because God sent Jesus. And though he was the righteous, perfect God-man, he steps into your place and my place by taking the form of a servant and served us by humbling himself and dying on a cross. And one day, every person who has ever lived will confess that Jesus is Lord. And we want to tell as many people as possible. We want there to be a sense of spiritual urgency in our lives. It's not just like, hey, let's just, maybe, maybe we should plant a church called Embassy. Maybe we should be part of what's going on uh, 200, uh, 100, you know, 100, about two hours to the east of us in chapel. No, no, like we need to. There needs to be a sense of spiritual urgency. And our call as followers of Jesus is to understand God's gracious provision in Jesus and to be part of the story and to live for Jesus. Whether in life or death, Paul says, I want Jesus to be honored in my life. So that if you're a believer, you're following after Christ, you're certainly going to find yourself in conversations and interactions and circumstances that are difficult, that are even dangerous. But I need to be reminded as Paul reminds the saints of Philippi, as Paul reminds the saints, brothers and sisters in Christ here at Embassy, that we are aware, bless you, of maybe one or two things, but God is orchestrating a million things right before us to bring about his purposes. God looks into the future and says, it's mine. 
and he's doing a million things, and you're part of the story of what God's doing here in Bloomington and in West Lafayette. The gospel of Jesus is unstoppable because it comes from a sovereign God in the universe who will see his plan come to fruition. He will build his church. He's building it here in Bloomington. He's building it in West Lafayette. And Paul tells these Christians in Philippi all of these truths and more because he loves them. And God is a witness that Paul has a deep affection like Maria and Eric and Critter, Pastor Chris, have for you. Your, your hearts have been knit together by God, just like the saints there in Philippi. So Paul prays, he encourages, and he thanks God for their faith in Jesus and their pursuit of Jesus, ultimately reminding the saints in Philippi, as the Spirit of Christ, I hope and pray, is reminding your heart and my heart, even right now, of the grace and the peace that has visited our hearts through repentance of sin and trust in Jesus. You saints in Philippi, you saints at embassy, you saints at the chapel, you were formerly unsaved, unredeemed, separated because of your sin, and God has opened up your heart and given you grace to believe in Jesus. He's, he's prompted and opened up our cold, sinful, dead hearts to believe and follow Jesus. It was by his grace, it is by his grace, and it will forever be by his grace, and it is a gift. It's a gift that we should hold loosely and want to live generously. Salvation is free. We know that through the Bible. Salvation is free, and yet a lot of us functionally live as if we have to pay him back. Salvation is free. The gift of freedom and rescue and forgiveness is free, but a lot of us live functionally as if we have to pay which, if I can be a little honest and candid this morning, it's offensive to the gift giver when we try to pay him back. Think about it like this. Picture salvation as a house that you live in. It provides you with provision and protection. It's stocked with food and drink that will last forever and never decays. It never crumbles. Its windows open onto vistas of glory. God built it at a great cost to himself and his son, and he gave it to you. And the purchase agreement is called a new promise, a new commitment, a new covenant. And the term reads, this house shall become and remain yours if you will receive it as a gift and take delight in the Father and the Son as they inhabit the house with you. You shall not profane the house of God by sheltering other gods nor turning your heart away from and after other treasures. And wouldn't it be foolish? Wouldn't it be foolish if we said yes to this agreement, yes to this commitment, this covenant, this promise, and then hire up a lawyer to draw up a schedule with monthly payments in the hopes of somehow balancing out the accounts. God would no longer be the free benefactor and you would be enslaved to a set of demands that he never dreamed of putting on you. Salvation is free. You can never pay it back. If grace is to be free, which is what grace is, you cannot view salvation as something to be repaid or a contract where we withhold up our end of the bargain. That's the point of Christianity. You have not, you will not, and you forever will not hold up your end of the bargain. Somebody else does that for us. His name is Jesus. And because of his grace, we have peace with God. God's gracious, generous provision in Jesus. Paul spends a lot of time, as I'm wrapping up this morning, he spends a lot of time about the fellowship in the gospel 
and partnership in the gospel, and this is the foundation of every letter in the New Testament. He calls them to live a life worthy of the gospel, to be a person of unity, to be of the same mind, striving with one another in the faith, looking to the interests of others, having the mind of Jesus, pursuing Jesus with tenacity and love. And all of this is made possible because of Jesus. There's no other noun mentioned more in Philippians than Jesus. It undergirds everything that Paul writes about, everything that Peter writes about, everything he exhorts them to do, everything he confronts them to do. Philippians 4, 10 through 20, is about a people who know Jesus, who love and share the gospel, whose citizenship is in heaven, and all of these truths bring about a particular companionship and solidarity and fellowship and joy. It's a joy that invades dark places. It's a joy that is steadfast in difficult times with your spouse or your job or your degree or your relationships. It's a joy that supersedes all circumstances of life, and it's available for anybody, no matter where they've been, what they've done, who they've done it with, and how many times. This joy, this grace, this peace This provision of God in Christ is available for anyone who's in Jesus. So we here at Embassy, and God willing, the chapel that's being birthed right now, we partner together in the good news of Jesus. Our lives are changed as we tell a watching world about the reason by which they were created, and that is that they would come to know Jesus. May the matchless King and Savior and friend of the world, so grip your heart that you are all in with Jesus. That is worth pursuing every ounce of your life after. Let me pray. Father, we love you. We do. We know what your word says in First John that we love you because you first loved us. Thank you for your provision. Gosh, thank you for your provision. Without hope, in your Bible, the word hope means the expectation of something good. We have all types of pursuits, relationships, and money, and prosperity, and harmony, and friendships, and education, and career, and prestige, and reputation, and on and on and on. For those in the room that are not believers, they feel it in their hearts. They feel the the vanity and the emptiness. And for those that are believers, we still struggle with functionally believing that you are to be our all-consuming joy and passion. Would you teach us? Would you be gentle with us? Would we be kind to ourselves as you play the long game with our hearts, that our hearts would increasingly be yielded to you as we meditate and think about the marvelous truth of your provision in Jesus. You did not even spare your own son. You are not a miser may we understand in a deep, deep level the matchless, the awesome truth about Jesus. And may it move us to be a people. May it move us to be a people. We pray, may it move us to be a people who live sacrificially and generously. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus and with expectation that you have heard us and you will answer us. Christ and we pray. Amen.
Thanks for listening. To learn more about us or to get connected, please visit embassybtown.org.